wielding American flags as weapons. They thought they were being patriots, but no, not at all. The real patriots invaded the Capitol 50 years ago. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for Central America is based on an economic model on foreign investment and foreign profit, on the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. The guy who really founded that connection between Israel and the evangelicals was Bibi Netanyahu. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, much too much of a role in this country, and without them knowing what it was doing. There's not going to be a war by Russia to conquer the United States. There's not going to be a war by China to conquer the United States. No country is going to conquer the United States. The United States is destroying itself because of the size of its military. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy, and uh, people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. I wasn't there, but my guess is that on April 19th, 1775, in Concord and Lexington, not a lot of people living in what's now America thought of that scruffy, ragtrag group of militant young men as patriots. Ask Americans today what the word patriot means, and I'm sure you'd hear at least two very divergent answers to the question. Some who call themselves conservatives would likely quickly define patriots as men and women in the military. I seriously doubt they'd see protesters against militarism, racism, and imperialism in their definition of patriots. But concluding the week of April 19, 1971, another ragtag group of scruffy young men must have baffled the then conservatives as they were Vietnam veterans recently returned from that war. Perhaps you're old enough to remember many in uniform, some wounded, vets in wheelchairs, Uh, angrily threw their medals over the fence at the Capitol building in a uniquely powerful, sometimes loud, protest against the war. In comparison with those who boisterously called themselves patriots as they stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021, our guest today, Elise Lemire, writes on History News Network that the real patriots invaded the nation's capital 50 years ago. Elise Lemire, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you for having me. Elise Lemire is the author of the just-released Battle Green Vietnam, the 1971 March on Concord, Lexington, and Boston. She's professor of literature at Purchase College, S-U-N-Y, and many saw the people who assaulted the Capitol on January 6th as the antithesis of patriots. Rather, they were trying to interrupt and, in fact, stop our treasured electoral democratic process from working. But to be fair, many carried the American flag as they invaded the building. I suspect most of them honestly thought they were the patriots. Does patriotism mean supporting the president no matter what or is uh, no matter what or is dissent the highest form of patriotism, as was allegedly said by Thomas Jefferson? Those who had returned from our war in Vietnam had no doubt gone in and out of a sense of patriotism. And then when the ugly truth was apparent, perhaps it was patriotism that still drove them on, motivating them at the Capitol as they threw back their hard-earned medals. 
Well, Elise, again, thanks for being with us. Your essay starts off with a bang. Rather than having me referring to some of the phrases used both in 1971 and on January 6, 2021, I think listeners would rather have you read it yourself. It is rather astounding. So if you would, please. They called their trip to Washington, D.C. an invasion, vowing not to, quote, be deterred or intimidated by police, government agents, or U.S. marshals, end quote, they arrived outfitted for war in fatigues and jungle boots with weapons and gas masks firmly in hand. Calling themselves concerned citizens and patriots, they announced their attention to, quote, protect the flag by stopping all business as usual until the government recognizes and responds positively to our demands, end quote. No, these were not the self-professed patriots who stormed the U.S. Capitol building on January 6, 2021. Absolutely amazing. It's just, uh, history is so fascinating. And, and to see the sort of parallels there, both claiming some degree of patriotism. Well, 2021 is sure an interesting time in history for many reasons. How did you come to write your new book, Battle Green Vietnam, the 1971 March on Concord, Lexington, and Boston at this time? Well, I was cruising the internet, as most of us do, and I came across a photograph that was taken in 1971 and posted on the net by an organization called Massachusetts Humanities. And in this photograph, a man in fatigues is leading a lot of other men, also in jungle fatigues, onto the Lexington battleground. And this immediately caught my eye because I grew up in the Concord-Lexington area and I thought I knew the memorialized landscape pretty well. I know it as a place sacred to the memory of the colonists who died so our country could be born. I went to reenactments as a kid. I, I have to date myself here. I grew up in the 70s uh, and in the years leading up to the bicentennial Reenactments became a popular event, but they were pretty sanitized. There was no blood, and even those people who had to pretend to die lived forever because they <laughs> presented men who, right, are our national martyrs, and we don't right. forget them. So in this picture, the, the lead man has his hands up. They're raised triumphantly over his head. He's flashing the peace sign. The guys following him are clapping, and I read this very short accompanying article that said he had recently come back from Vietnam and was protesting the war there and that the Lexington selectmen, now called the select board, of course, of course. Refused, refused to give them permission to protest on the green and the veterans had decided uh -huh. to do so anyway. And so the result, the article explained, was the largest mass arrest in Massachusetts history. Over 400 people were arrested. Well, this was the first time I'd ever seen real soldiers on an actual battlefield. And the feeling I had was very, very different than the feeling you get attending a reenactment. You can't see this picture and glorify war. These were real soldiers, and they were saying the war is awful. And awful enough, right, that they were willing to break the law to get their message across. So... I immediately realized two things looking at this picture, right? One, the memorialized landscape is political. We can either use it to congratulate ourselves about the past, or we can use it to raise questions about who we want to be in the future. And two, I realized that war is not an abstract concept. It's what philosophers call a contest of mutual injuring. Mm. People try to kill each other, and they often succeed. And for reasons that 
aren't always purely defensive or for some other noble cause. <laughs> um, and I, I basically at that point knew that I had to make that picture talk to me. I wanted to know why this guy was wearing his jungle fatigues. I wanted to know why they were in Lexington, what they were doing. And I've since met and interviewed the man in the picture. His name is Lenny Rotman, and he's a senior film producer today at a firm in Cambridge. And what I learned from him and all of the other Vietnam veterans I interviewed is that the most patriotic thing we can do as Americans is protest any action our government is taking that we know with certainty to be immoral. I tend to agree, and perhaps I met you there in uh, April seven, uh, 1975. I was at that uh, Concord Lexington uh, bicentennial. Uh, anyway, a long time ago. But like many of my boomer generation, born in 1950, I grew up deeply patriotic. We beat fascism. We treasure our freedom in the face of awareness of all those people behind the Iron Curtain who had no freedom and lived under communist dictatorship. America was, of course, the country which the rest of the world looked up to. We would always be on the side of the oppressed, and we would defend the small, powerless nations against colonialism. That was patriotism. Learning the truth about our war in Vietnam was deeply, deeply disturbing in that context. The war had been sold to us as freedom for the people of Vietnam versus communist invasion led by the Russians and Chinese, and of course it was painted as part of the Cold War. Teachings sprouted up everywhere across the country, and the shock that what we were told wasn't true was very upsetting. And from that knowledge and sense of patriotism to our traditional American principles, many of us took to the streets again and again, yet the war continued. But the peace movement did have an effect. Johnson left office in hopes of bringing peace. Then there was Nixon, who was elected in 1968, of course. After years of protests with bigger and bigger crowds, how did Nixon tap into this yearning for peace? And what was the effect on war protests? Well, let's recall first that Nixon runs for president, like you said, in 68, on a platform of what he called peace with honor. Right. So once he's in the White House, he does start to draw down ground troops, but he's also ramping up the air war. What that meant in practice was that he was still sending newly trained ground troops to Vietnam, but with less support right, from other military personnel. This is what John Kerry was talking about when he testified uh, as the national spokesperson for VVAW in 71 to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. How do you ask a man to be the last man to die in Vietnam? Right. He's talking there about the drawdown. So then there's also this air war, right? So let's recall that between 64 and 73, the U.S. undertakes a secret program that entails dropping more bombs on Laos, right, a country the size of Utah, than were dropped on all of Europe during World War II. Mm. So as your question, Nixon largely succeeded in silencing what had been, up until then, the most sustained and active anti-war campaign in history. Uh, and he does this by conflating two lists that had, that it had, until that point, been kept secret. And I'm talking about the list of POWs, or prisoners of war, and the list of MIAs, or missing in action. So once he conflates those two lists, Americans are under the very mistaken impression that there are, are a lot more men imprisoned in Vietnam than there actually were. And this is all coming from a book, a wonderful book by H. Bruce Franklin uh, on the POW MIA issue. So the Nixon administration runs with this 
new argument that there are all these men in prison, and this is by partnering with Ross Perot and, and his allies, and they set out to bond Americans to these supposedly thousands of imprisoned men. You might recall yeah. uh, the bracelet campaign, right? Americans oh. are wearing these bracelets, and each bracelet is inscribed with the name of a single American man. And most likely that man was dead if his name was on the MIA list. But the wearer of the bracelet is thinking that the war has to go on until this man is brought home right. safe. Maybe oh, you were. I do remember that. Yeah, we're the fighting, wearing the bracelet. Well, and we're fighting the war to to get our uh, troops back to get right. them out of. It, it worked. Right. <laughs> to, yeah, and the other thing the Nixon administration is yeah. doing is they're putting up these re, these pretend cages, right, with with mannequins in them and fake cockroaches and. Americans are horrified and think, wow, we, we really have to keep this war going. So Nixon is doing two things at once, right? He's ramping up this the war, saying he's not, and simultaneously silencing the civilian anti-war movement. So this is where um, I become interested in what happens, because thousands of American military personnel coming back from Vietnam are horrified. They're horrified that Nixon wasn't ending the illegal and immoral war immediately, mm-hmm. and that they were horrified that the civilian peace movement had gone silent. Well, he was very clever, and of course he talked about peace with honor. I thought that was very, very clever. And, uh, you know, given that it was our boys in the jungles and cities of Vietnam, the appeal of the phrase, support our boys in Vietnam, caught on well. If it was fathers, sons, brothers, and our neighbors over there, how could we not support them? <laughs> and that, and we, you know, they were our relatives and friends. In that context, your essay on History News Network quotes a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution complaining to a protester in '71. What did she say? Uh, and this was these were to the uh, the guys who were throwing the medals. What did she say? And what concerns did she reflect? And what about the, that tactic of support our boys? Yeah. So Vietnam Veterans Against the War decides to go to D.C. and essentially occupy the National Mall for five days. Right. So starting the week of Patriots Day, mm-hmm. and they they do various things while they're there. They go to Arlington National Cemetery to lay wreaths for both the American and the Vietnamese war dead. They have candlelight vigils. They talk to their Congress men and women. Uh, it's a busy week for them. And and one of the things they do is they they march around the city in their fatigues. And uh, most of them had decided to grow their hair. And this might seem irrelevant, but actually it's in fact really important, right? Because in the military, you're required to keep your hair really short. And one of the ways veterans showed the world that they were rejecting the military's values was by growing their hair out and instead cultivating an aesthetic that aligned them with the hippies, right? Peace and love. So here are these long-haired guys who are clearly soldiers, right? All of the guys in DVAW who show up in D.C. bring their discharge papers to prove that they're that they're really veterans because Nixon tries to prove that they're not. They're marching along, and this this woman who's a member of the daughter of the American Revolution says to them, you know, this is not good for the troops. And they, the retort is, you know, lady, we are the troops. Right. Um, and I, I will say this, her concern about troop morale, right, that, that if you protest the war, you're, you're hurting the morale of the troops who are in harm's way, that, that was not such an unusual 
view. So I, I tell the story in my book, Operation POW, through the eyes of six veterans. And one of them had a brother who was in the Marines. And in the early years of the war, whenever there was an anti-war protest in his town, which was Newton, Massachusetts, ah. his, his Marine brother would put on his dress blues and their father would accompany him and they would have a counter protest, right? So there'd be an anti-war protest, protest and they, this guy would show up in his Marine dress blues as a counter protest in order to support the troops. Um, I interviewed another veteran who has since passed away, a guy named Dale Reese who told me that in 1970, his brother was also in the military and literally beat him up when Dale complained about what was going on in Vietnam. So there was this view that to protest was to hurt the troops in harm's way. But interestingly, to go back to Peter Wilson, by the spring of 71, Peter Wilson comes back from Vietnam. He had served there while Nixon was drawing down the troops and as a result was in harm's way and, and told me a story about almost losing his leg because he just didn't have any backup. And by then, his father had changed his mind and came to entirely approve of and support his son's anti-war activists. So, so views are shifting and yes. it's probably surprising that the DAR represents what was a dying view. Eventually, eventually most of the American public comes to side with the anti-war veterans. Yes, after it, it took quite a while, and a lot of people died and lost limbs and were affected long-term by the chemicals that were used there in Agent Orange. And right. uh, I, I'm not sure how much we really learned about that. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Elise Lemire, who's uh, written on History News Network, The Real Patriots, The Real Patriots Invaded the Nation's Capital 50 years ago. No, it wasn't January 6, 2021. 1971 was a, a big, important year for the anti-war movement. And by then, everybody had heard about the My Lai Massacre. The Winter Soldier hearings, and that phrase Winter Soldier uh, comes from Thomas Paine, who wrote, the summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in the crisis, shrink from the service of their country. And the Winter Soldier was not doing that. They were not shrinking in service to their country. So the Winter Soldier gathering happened in Detroit in 1971, where the veterans could and did talk about the atrocities that they witnessed, that Milai was not just a bad actor. These are the things no decent country ever wants to hear about. It's so much more reassuring to believe they were just bad apples. What highly disturbing things did these veterans know and share at that gathering and at those hearings? I'm glad you reminded everyone that the term winter soldier is one Vietnam veterans against the war borrowed from Thomas Paine. Um, they, the veterans had decided in the fall of 1970 to march from Morristown, Pennsylvania to Valley Forge. And it was at Valley Forge when they were protesting there in a, in a wonderful event that the press completely ignored uh, that that's where they were reminded of, of Thomas um, Paine. Because, of course, during those horrible winters when the Continental Troops were bivouacking at Morristown and Valley Forge, George Washington was able to staunch the number of defections by reading to them from the essay in Common Sense. So, yes, Vietnam Veterans Against the War, this organization that starts in 1967, they've, by 1970, have changed tactics and become really interested in borrowing the discourse of the American Revolution. So when they decide that they're going to put together 
a conference, a three-day conference in Detroit, uh, where veterans who have been vetted, right, who just whose papers have been checked, whose stories have been um, cross-checked with each other, when they decide to have that, they do decide to call their testimony the Winter Soldier Investigation. And they talk about violations of international law. They talk about press censorship. They talk about the toxicity of Agent Orange. I believe that's the first time anyone does that. Mm. They talk about the racism instilled in them during basic training. And they talk about a lot more besides. So, for example, right, five days before the Winter Soldier investigation, the Pentagon denied that the U.S. had ever sent ground troops into the neighboring country of Laos, right? And at Winter Soldier, five veterans testified that, in fact, an entire regiment of the 3rd Marines had been sent into Laos and had engaged in combat there, which, because Laos was a neutral country, was in violation of international law. They also testified that the U.S. military had refused to medevac out the wounded and the dead because oh, they were afraid uh, the, press would, the press would discover it. So the hmm. problem, of course, with the Winter Soldier investigation was that the national press turned its back. Uh, the press had covered Me Lai, and they did cover the ensuing court martials very closely, and then seemed to suffer from atrocity fatigue. Nah. <laughs> um, that or that or no one wanted to report that atrocities were not rare exceptions. So this is the point at which, according to some accounts, John Kerry, who's then serving as VVAW's national spokesman, spokesman decides that VVAW has to take its message to Washington. Right. Uh, other members of VVAW said they had known for a while that they were going to go to Washington. The, the point here is that um, this is where this is the moment at which, because of the lack of press coverage. DVAW decides to protest in D.C. Uh, this is when they throw their medals away and they decide to name that that protest in D.C. Operation Dewey Canyon 3. Well, I was just going to ask about that. And before I, I did, you reminded me there was a guy I knew in college who had been in Vietnam and he would. It was very moving. He would he would cry, he would break down and cry when he thought about the Hmong tribesmen that uh, and yes. all the atrocities that they saw yep. these very innocent people, you know, and this is, a, you know, a grown man and a strong American, but they saw what was real there. So why was it called Dewey Canyon 3? Do tell. Oh, and just to follow up on your point about the tears, I mean, so many of the men who testified at Winter Soldier uh, did cry. Uh, and it's, I think every student should be required to watch the film footage, the, doc the documentary film made about that. Um, yeah. So why did they call their 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 five day protest Operation Dewey Canyon three? Well, I mentioned that they testified at Winter Soldier about the secret American invasion of Laos. And those operations were called by the military operations Dewey Canyon one and two. So VVAW has a couple of things in mind here where they when they decide to call their own protest Operation Dewey Canyon three. So the first thing is. They called their protest operations to remind the public that they were former military, right? Which is to say they're trustworthy because they, they're talking about what they know, but also to say that they're adept at carrying out tactical missions. Uh -huh. And they, they started doing that when they marched from Morristown to Valley Forge. They called that march, you know, they walked 86 miles, it's worth saying. They called that march Operation Rapid American Withdrawal or Operation Raw. And of course, raw spelled backwards is war. Yeah, I mean, they were very cagey about this. But by calling their, their, their protests operations, the veterans were saying, 
look out, right? A military type force is coming through. And by calling this one in DC, Operation Dewey Canyon 3, they're signaling that they're going to invade. They're not going to invade Laos. They're going to invade Congress. And how is Congress going to feel about being overrun? Well, which brings up uh, January 6th, 2021. You know, and uh, Nixon tried to act above it all, but he uh, surrounded the White House with buses bumper to bumper, troops allegedly inside the perimeter. At the Capitol in April 71, Nixon did something similar to what the Capitol is surrounded by now. And these people on January 6th, it sounds like they were ready to make war on the war, well, who was then the war maker since 1971. But, and some of them were dressed in military fatigues and helmets and gas masks and things like that. So I, I wonder if there's some kind of uh, irony, you know, that now the capital is surrounded by a fence. It was surrounded by a fence then. They had to throw them over, you know, the medals over the fence. Is there some kind of uh, irony? I think it is really interesting that there was a fence put up, right? Because the Capitol building is our branch. It's the home of the branch of the legislative. It's the home of the legislative branch of our government. Right. And because of that, it's, you know, the doors are open. They're meant to be open to the public. And it was built with a very welcoming facade. So the fact of a fence around it is ironic to begin with. Um, what, what, you know, again, I just, I can't help but constantly refer to VVAW as brilliant in their tactics. So when they see a fence, when BBAW sees a fence, they don't think about storming it. They've had enough of violence, right? They've had enough of violence. They decide to, to use the building symbolically. So they see the fence and they think, how can we use this for our optics? And on the fifth day of the march, uh, or the occupation, whatever we want to call it, of Washington, D.C., they decide to build a stage on the, I believe it's the west side of the Capitol building. And, you know, again, thinking tactically, they decide to put up this really powerful sound system so that whatever they do on this stage, everyone is going to hear, which includes the press. They always invite the press. And on that final day, they spend a couple of hours Um, 800 veterans stand in line for a chance to throw away medals, ribbons, and citations. And again, always thinking performatively, um, they throw them over the fence into a pile and they've erected a sign next to the pile of discarded discarded medals that says trash. So the difference in in my mind is just obvious in the sense that VVAW was always thinking symbolically and they were always thinking about optics and they were always being tactical and they were never being violent ever, ever. And they, they spent a lot of time training in, in anti-violent techniques and training to make sure that if, and when they were arrested and they often were Hmm. that those arrests happened safely and that no one got hurt that, They were always looking out for provocateurs. They were always on the lookout for someone who might try to make them look bad or who someone who might instigate violence. So when they saw that fence, it was never going to be something they tore down. It was going to be something they used. And when those guys stood up there to throw away their medals, I mean, talk about tears. Yeah. They were crying and everyone watching was crying and it was carried on every national news program. It was incredibly effective. Yeah, how could it not be? And, you know, this 1971, 
Protests have been going on year after year after year, getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and the war kept going on and nothing was changing. So here were these guys, and I think they were all guys, in uniform, military people who had been there. That just changed the narrative quite a bit, and it certainly attracted media attention and got the message across like nothing else at all. Uh, right. And, you know, I, winning medals in a war is all about the nation's highest honor, bravery, patriotism. And given that, one can only imagine the emotions of each allegedly tough Vietnam veteran as they went up one by one to the fence. What kinds of things did they say as they hurled these medals over the fence? And I would only I would add to your list, which is a great list, right, about how medals are a sign of honor, bravery, and patriotism, but also a sign of masculinity in our culture. Oh, true. Right? So, Good point. <laughs> so throwing those away, I think, um, meant that VVAW, at the same time as they were discarding a very tried and true and old uh, model of masculinity, say, emblematized by, I don't know, John Wayne, they had to rebuild a new model of masculinity. And we can talk about that if you want. It's, it's super interesting. But what did they say? Well, uh, excuse my language. One guy described his medals as crap. Uh, another described them as worthless. Uh, another said they were a symbol of dishonor, shame, and inhumanity. Mm. They said that their hearts were broken. I want to add here, too, that some veterans couldn't come, right? So when every veteran gets to the, finally gets to the microphone, right, because it takes hours for this to happen, each veteran is careful to say his name, the town and state where he's from. And one of the things that happens is it becomes clear these guys represent the entire country. But some veterans couldn't come, and so they would they would send in statements and ask people to read them on mm. their behalf. And it would be their name, their rank, the fact that they had an honorable discharge. That was really important. So here's a statement I have in front of me from a veteran who couldn't come. And this is a quote. I am ashamed of myself for having served in the armed forces of the United States and for contributing to the devastation of a small, underprivileged country. I am guilty by association. I feel that this small act will redeem me and help bring a swift end to this unconstitutional war. Listening to that, it, how people could think, oh, you know, they're not patriotic, just, you know, kind of reactively. I, it just, you know, people have different senses of what patriotism means. It's not nationalism. <laughs> That's very different. It's about the principles of this country. And they right. understood that for sure. And, you know, as I said, I, as I was growing up, you know, I couldn't imagine the United States being on the side of the colonialists and the occupiers. It was just completely against my sense of patriotism. And obviously these guys, too, who went in for the best of intentions. Absolutely. And to see them shaken up like that, we don't... We haven't... I don't think we've learned that lesson particularly. Let's talk about that before the end of the show. But for those who just... Uh, tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Elise Lemire is the uh, cap the uh, uh, guest today who has written about the real patriots invaded the nation's capital 50 years ago. We're talking about Operation Dewey Canyon III when the Vietnam veterans threw the medals over the fence. It was, it was very moving. And let's talk about that masculinity thing. That's an interesting point because here we are in 2021, where the concepts of masculinity are, you know, being shaken up quite a bit. And before the election of November 2020, uh, there were people, Trumpists, men who were like, yeah, we're tough, you know, and if you're not one of us, you're, 
something else. You know, you're not masculine. <laughs> and so this was 50 years ago. So they were just a tad ahead of their time. But what about that, that masculinity and how that might have kind of challenged these guys? Well, I think all of them, all of them told me that their dads in the main had served in World War II. So they grew up with dads who had a very particular model of masculinity. It was a patriotic one, right? If you were a real man, you served your country, you risked your life, and maybe you gave your life for it. Um, that came with, you know, the short hair and the good job that, you know, and all that other kind of stuff. So the Vietnam veterans come back and in eschewing the part about needing to serve in a war in order to be a man, they have to build something in its place. Um, I don't think they were at the point where they could, you know, just eschew masculinity altogether. Right. No. They were that ahead of the curve. <laughs> but what they end up what they end up doing is and I, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I guess I'll just say it. They make be they made being they made having long hair and looking like a hippie and wearing fatigues at the same time a, a new kind of masculine vibe that was very appealing to people. I mean, one of the things that happens between Dewey Canyon 3 and even Operation POW, which is a period of six sure. weeks, is that the country goes from seeing, from, from not understanding what they're looking at when they see a long-haired guy in fatigue. They don't get it. Right. The first of Dewey Canyon, the Christian Science Monitor, is writing articles saying, what the heck is going on, right? We, hippies are people who don't go to war. Um, but these guys went to the war. They didn't know what to make of them. BDAW forged a new kind of manhood. By the end of Dewey Canyon 3, and certainly six weeks later by Operation POW, this had become an ideal. So, for example, when the veterans march into Lexington, Massachusetts, as part of Operation POW, which is the subject of my book, these teenage boys jump on their bicycles and follow them. And I've interviewed some of them and they said they thought these guys were heroes. Huh. They, and they weren't soldiers. They were anti-war activists. Right. And these, got, these, these teenage boys thought they were the bomb. Um, wanted to look like them, be like them, emulate them in every way. And that is really incredible if you think about it. Well, that's what really upsets the right-wingers. <laughs> Kids like that kind of thing, and they're drawn to it. And it's like, oh, no, they're not buying into the, you know, if if you're in uniform and you don't have short hair, well, there's something wrong here. It's not masculine. And masculinity was just beginning, I think, to be questioned back then. But one of the things that really continues today... Uh, aside from the debate about masculinity, is systemic racism. Many of the protesting veterans uh, felt that racism was in integral to the American policy in Vietnam. Tell us about that, please. Right. And in fact, I, I mean, I wish we had hours because this is a really interesting, um, this is a really interesting topic for me. Yeah, the VVAW is ahead of the curve insofar as they're developing this new model of masculinity, but they're also very early on. I mean, you know, there's there's uh, Muhammad Ali who's talking about this too, but in terms of being a, a group that uh, VVAW is predominantly white who begins to recognize this, um, they start to talk about, uh, in Winter Soldier, they start to talk about racism. So here's an example. One of, one of the men I profile, a helicopter pilot, um, who testified. He's, he he was one of the more important people to testify at Winter Soldier only because he was, I think, their highest ranking officer to testify. He was put on night medevac when he was in Vietnam. 
And his commanding officer said to him, if we hear that there's a wounded person and they're Vietnamese, you're not going to go pick them up. Yeah. He said they he said they aren't Americans. And then he used a racial epithet that I'm mm-hmm. not going to repeat on air, right? It's the one that begins with a G. Yes. They aren't Americans. They're blank. Um, and so when when this veteran, this pilot comes back and goes to Winter Soldier, he says this is giving him nightmares and he can't sleep at night because whenever it was a case of, you know, do we do we go in and help someone or do we not? Uh, it was always discussed with these racial epithets and there was really no value for Vietnamese life. So when we get to Operation Dewey Canyon 3 the following spring, several of the veterans who step to the mic talk about this. So there's a white veteran who steps to the mic. And this is all on film. I mean, right, this is in the day when people could now have a portable camera and you could change the magazine really quickly and film on the fly. So Mm. one of the things that's really great for historians is that 1971 is so well documented, not just with still photographs, but with film footage. So all of this is filmed. A white veteran steps to the mic and he says he's returning his commendation medal. Now, a commendation medal is one you get for a sustained act of heroism. And he says he's he's he said he was awarded it for racism. So he rejects it. And a black veteran steps to the mic. And I quoted this man in my article. He says, I symbolically return my Vietnam medals and other service medals given me by the power structure that has genocidal policies against the non-white people's of the world. So I think there I think one thing VVAW understood really early on is that the two wars, right? The war on Southeast Asian people and the war on African Americans at home were not two distinct things, right? So they understood that really early on and brought it to the public consciousness. And I wonder how conscious we are of it, really. I mean it, it just uh as people are partly tired of hearing me say, listeners, uh, one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. That's been erased, specifically erased. I never imagined that we would not learn the obvious lessons from Vietnam. And here we are, 2021, 50 years after the uh, Vietnam Veterans Against the War action in 1971. It made a big splash. And it's interesting that the protesting veterans noted that April 19th, 1971 was the anniversary of the what's been called the day uh, that the shot heard around the world, which was fired at Concord Bridge to start the uh, American War of Independence. What are some of the connections, do you think, and similarities between those two actions? Well, for me, the thing about VVAW that has always been critically important is that they put a lot of work into making clear, as we've said, that protesting is patriotic. And one of the things, one of the ways that they do this is by constantly keying their actions to those of the American Revolution. So they're winter soldiers when they march to Valley Forge. They're the founding fathers when they go to D.C. on Patriots Day. They're Paul Revere when they uh, come back to Boston and decide to march his route as a means of bringing a message to the people that they need to resist against an imperialist oppressor. They're the colonial militia when they take a stand on the Lexington Battle Green. I mean, the point is they, they always stake the claim to being the descendants of those people who brought a democratic nation into existence. Mm. They, they, they constantly claimed and rightfully so to, to be the, the sons of the, the patriots that uh, brought the United States into being. Uh, as I recall, there was something called the sons of Liberty early on, really early on in Boston. Um, oh, absolutely. And what, what happens, what happened to the vets who threw their medals? Did they face any 
disciplinary action. What what effect do you think it had on the country's opinions on the war and on the veterans themselves? It's interesting you ask that because I haven't heard of a single soldier who faced disciplinary actions. And I think the reason is because they were no longer on active duty. Now, there were soldiers on active duty who participated in Operation Dewey Canyon 3. I know for a fact there were soldiers on active duty at Operation POW, which is the reversal of the Paul Revere March. Um, and, and DVAW was very protective of active duty soldiers and made sure that they were safe and weren't weren't spotted by the press. Oh. But the people who threw their medals away, they they were out of the military. I, I also haven't mentioned that Gold Star Mothers worked very closely with DVAW wow. and participated in both of these actions. So, for example, there's a Gold Star Mother who threw away her son's medals. That's oh. the part where I just ball my eyes. Oh, geez. She's beyond the jurisdiction of the military. So <laughs> I don't know of anyone who faced disciplinary action. I do want to say in terms of you know, did it change the the, the country's opinion? Um, I told you about the officer, the helicopter pilot who who testified about racism at Winter Soldier. He uh, threw. He he's very. He's his image has become very famous because a picture of him throwing away a silver star has kind of become the poster shot of Winter of of Dewey Canyon Three. His picture throwing away a medal is, is you'll often see that in, in books about VVAW. He thought the medal ceremony was so powerful. And this is a quote. He said, I thought Nixon was going to bring all the troops home by supper time. And, you know, he's a new England. So I just love that. He, he, this is what he thought. He, he, he's, he also has told me and other people who've interviewed him that after throwing away two medals, they were not his own medals. They were the medals of other pilots who had died needlessly in Vietnam. He sobbed for hours afterwards. He thought that Nixon would bring the troops home by supper time. And of course, that didn't happen. But I don't think that's to say that VVAW didn't succeed, right? I mean, they they succeeded in keeping Nixon from escalating the war, which we now know Nixon was contemplating. And they convinced Americans, for a time at least, to stop glorifying war. And if we want any proof of that all we have to do is go to dc and visit the vietnam veterans memorial or the or the war as it's the walls sorry the wall as yeah. it's popular because it's a very different kind of war memorial than you see in concord or lexington um i mean obviously since then we've got the korean war memorial and the world war ii memorial which i think are starting to glorify war again yeah bbw made its mark Nixon could not continue the war much longer, and he certainly couldn't escalate it. And that's because of them. Yeah, and that's pretty heroic. And that's what medals are about. People who who have some degree of of, uh, heroism in themselves and and bravery. And, uh, you know, that Vietnam Memorial, the wall. You're right. It is very, very different, and and that's it's so clear. I hadn't put that together before that the protests made a difference in what that monument was because it was it's mysterious. It's dark. Unlike it's, it's it is, dark. You go there to mourn. You go there to mourn the loss of American lives. You do not necessarily go there to mourn the loss of Vietnamese life, which is a, uh, a yeah. another question altogether. But yes. you are meant to go and regret. You are meant to go and regret and regret the decisions the government made. So that's VVAW, right? Teaching people how to see the war for what it really was so that it couldn't be memorialized in a kind of glorious way. There's no no soaring obelisk for the Vietnam War. I am reminded of a memorial I saw in Chateau Thierry in France for World War I. 
and carved in huge letters, glory. It just sickened me. Yeah. It really, it's like, what, you're going to tell young kids that this is glorious? Uh, these guys yeah. know it's not glorious and you can't miss the message of what they're saying because they've been there. And, and one of the things I wanted to ask about, and I wonder about the protesters 50 years later who claim to be patriots, you know, on January 6, 2021. I would find it hard to believe they were concerned about the grounds that they were on. 1971 was very early in the environmental movement. And unlike Woodstock two years before, which left a lot of trash, the VVAW treated their campsite differently. Tell us about that aspect, please. Yeah, part of that has to do with military training, right? If you're in the military, you don't leave your site until you've policed it. That's the military ah. term for cleaning up. You've policed it. So once again, they're always thinking performatively, right? So they're establishing their credibility as soldiers by keeping this scrupulously clean campsite. And in doing so, of course, they're also countering this narrative that they're dirty hippies. Um, <laughs> they, I, I think, too, one of the things happening here is that um, they have started to talk about Agent Orange. They're feeling very guilty and upset about what they did to the earth when they were in Vietnam. So mm. I think the tree is in part showing that they regretted uh, their actions, both against uh, humanity, but also against the environment. Of course, the two become inextricably linked. You can't really separate that. But I, but I do want to say that, again, this is about establishing their credibility as members of the military. They clean up after themselves. Um, I think that's part of what's happening there. It's coming together, the picture that you're painting of, of responsible people here who really care about doing the right thing. Imagine that. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and you point out, on the bus ride home, that's a long right. bus ride from Washington <laughs> to Boston, Been done it many times, the New England chapter of VVAW came up with what you argue is one of the most effective anti-war anti -war marches in history, Operation POW. Tell us about that, please. Well, I'll first say the name, right? The names of these VBAW actions are always really important. And I think we started off the conversation reminding ourselves that Nixon conflated the POW and MIA list and convinced the American public he had to continue the war until all of the prisoners of war mm -hmm. were brought back. Mm -hmm. And what VBAW said when they, the, the New England branch came home to the Boston area, they called their march Operation POW and said, we are all prisoners of this war, meaning the oh, entire... Wow. So the name was really important, but I think just to back up for a minute, sure. the, New, the New England chapter of VVAW had a very outsized role in funding Operation Dewey Canyon 3, right? I mean, there are a lot of ex expenses associated with moving people around and making sure people have food, etc. The logistics for pulling these things off were incredible. Um, but they had an outside role in funding Dewey Canyon 3 because the Boston area was home to all of these universities and the science labs that spun off from them that were being funded by the Defense Department. Oh. So the Boston, the Boston area was home, to, was home to a very highly educated people who tended to be very liberal. So yes. members of BVAW New England would show film footage of the winter soldier testimonies in people's homes and then they would pass around a steel helmet and it would come back full of cash full of checks so they paid not only for their own buses to dc they paid for other chapters from across the country to get to dc so they knew going back to to boston on the bus that they had 
at home waiting for them, a pretty susceptible audience, a sympathetic Mm. audience. They were also facing the nation's first three-day Memorial Day weekend, right? We hadn't had that before. This had to do with the Uniform Monday Holiday Act. So given that the holiday's purpose is to honor the war dead and the fact that that had been moved in order to spur more shopping, the veterans (laughs) saw that as an amazing opportunity to repurpose the weekend because that's what they were always about was taking symbols and getting people to see them in a new way. And they said, okay, we've we've gotten the nation's attention in in D.C. and how can we keep it on our mission? And this is when they decide to continue to key their actions to the American Revolution and they say, hey, we're going to reverse Paul Revere's route we think that'll take about three days. It's a perfect length. But the beauty of Paul Revere's route, I mean, at least as mapped out by the poet Longfellow, it's not an actual, yeah, right. it's not a, Longfellow wasn't being very precise here, but no. this is going to allow them to visit four sacred Revolutionary War battlefields, right? The Old North Bridge and Concord, the Battle Road, the Lexington Battle Green and Bunker Hill. So the idea is that they're going to visit each of these battlefields and they will go in their fatigues and they will perform mock search and destroy missions, right? They've got these toy M16s they bring with them. They have civilians who agree to pose as Vietnamese who are just going about their day. And then these Vietnam veterans come running out in their fatigues with their fake guns, which look completely real. And they tie them up, interrogate them, and then pretend to kill them. When you see that happening on a Revolutionary War battlefield, you immediately have to do some math. You have to do the calculus, right? Like, what is the difference between a Revolutionary War battle and the kind of search and destroy mission I'm seeing? And the only conclusion to be drawn is that we once were the little country that fought off an imperial oppressor, and now we've become one. So... A lot of other things happen in Operation POW. I don't know how much time we have to go into them, but the way in which they used symbols, keyed their actions to the American Revolution, and by the end of the three-day march were headlines all over the country because they forced the Lexington selectmen to arrest them for being war soldiers. So they it's another really, really successful effort. It's fascinating because Yes, John Kerry is there, but by then he's become a national celebrity overnight because of what he said in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The New England veterans are afraid people are going to show up because here's this handsome Yale graduate and they don't want people to show up for the wrong reason. So Kerry agrees to come. He gets arrested, but they don't let him talk. There's so much I could tell you about this. I do just want to say, if you don't mind, sure. we've, I love that we've been talking about this at a broad level because I think the history of VVAW uh, in and of itself is so important. I did want to mention that um, the book to read about the, the definitive history book about VVAW is by Gerald Nicosia. And it's called Home to War. A History of the Vietnam Veterans Movement. It's over 600 pages. My book is a deep dive into Operation POW. And for people who want to know the specifics about how that was carried out and what happened, I am going to be doing a free Zoom webinar for the Boston Public Library on May 26th. Anyone can go to the website and sign up for that. Um, and I'm always happy to talk about it more. I just don't know how much time we have. But yeah, Operation POW was a massive success. And they kept it up. As I understand, you know, it used to be, and that was one of the problems with the anti-war protests, is that we go there and make a protest, gather in large numbers, and then go home. Uh, right. But but these people, 
I think they were very creative. You talk about the New England veterans, uh, and people kept up their efforts, uh, making their voices heard because it it was them. It, they had been there. They uh, you know felt it in their hearts, and they. Uh, the, what, the, the work of the VVAW continued, and we should uh, yeah. publicize that book for sure. Uh, what, what, you know, after the war ended, finally, April 30th, 1975, it ended as it would have had the, we just not gotten in there when the French lost in 1954 oh. and we're trading yep. with them now. There was no reason for any of it. Uh, so, but how did, what did the, the VVAW do after April 30th, 1975, when the war was over, what did they do for their comrades? Um, I, I, first of all, I want to mention that VVAW is still an organization yes. and people can go to their website, uh, VVAW.org. Um, one of the things we should mention that they did was they were instrumental in getting PTSD recognized uh-huh. in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And of course, Americans know that if your disorder is not covered in the DSM, right, you can't get your insurance to cover it. So in 1980, thanks to VVAW, PTSD is recognized um, and and thereafter people get better care. Uh, The other thing it's worth mentioning just in terms of their continued influence is that when Iraqi veterans, or sorry, when uh, Americans who fought in Iraq, sorry, um, came home and were also feeling right. just completely disillusioned uh, and needed a way forward, a way to draw attention to their cause, they modeled themselves after VVAW. So there is an IVAW, or Iraq Veterans Against the War. Right. They also decided to throw their medals away. Now, they don't do it uh-huh. at the Capitol because in their mind, war has become an international business. They call themselves veterans of the wars of NATO, they throw their medals away at a NATO summit in Chicago. Mm. Um, They march up to the NATO summit chanting N-A-T-O, we don't kill for you no more. I didn't do that very well, but calling cadence, um, calling out NATO, they threw away their medals. So VVAW lives on as an inspiration, as a way forward. And I think actually their investment in the, what I call the powers of place and performance, right? Going to particular places to make a case and being performative in what you do. I mean, that's had long reaching effects and we can see that in the Black Lives Matter movement, right? I mean, an attention to where you protest and how you do it. This, these are all VBAW's legacies. And I wonder if people want to be patriotic and, and feel patriotic, what do you think the VVAW and the the uh, action in uh, 1971 shows people how can people learn what can they learn from that about real patriotism? Do you think that they can carry forward into our current lives? Well, I've always been struck by the fact that the and we are mostly talking about men. There, there certainly were women who served in Vietnam and and some who did join VVAW. So I do apologize for constantly talking about men. So let me say people. I am always struck by the fact that the people who served a tour, sometimes two tours in Southeast Asia, came home and basically decided to do another tour. That's what they called being an anti-war activist, another tour, which is to say they also viewed it as their country they could have gone back into civilian life right the luxuries of civilian life for many of them although again right i mean the 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 war is mostly fought by by working class and kids and and kids of color but 
So my, my point is that they they loved America. I mean, we should say the United States, right? Because that's right. what we're talking about. But we can say America. They loved America so much that they lived on unemployment for a year, most of them, the guys I interviewed, so they could be full-time anti-war activists. And the work was incredibly energy intensive, right? We're talking about it takes weeks and weeks to plan a big protest. Mm. You have to think about meals. You have to rent portable toilets. You have to notify the police about what you're going to be doing. You have to train people in nonviolence. So I guess for me, the answer to your question has to do with um, being willing to do the work. And the work is is so mm. so intense that you, you might not even even be able to hold down a full-time job. And that's a level of commitment and love of country that I have never seen before. I'm not sure I have it, but it's been a privilege to tell the story of the people who did because the commitment is intense and it doesn't come out of a hatred of country. This is love of country. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And the way you explain it so well, uh, it, it shows love of country and love of the principles that it's all about. Uh, her book is called Battle Green Vietnam, the 1971 March on Concord, Lexington, and Boston. Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, we could all use some inspiration like that for uh, carrying patriotism forward into the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, oh. 
hear me sing. 